They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 68 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus and Mises PAC. I'm Aaron Harris and I'm your host. My guest today is Dr. Michael Edelstein, who was recommended for the podcast by your friend and mine, Dr. Walter Block. Dr. Edelstein is the author of Three Minute Therapy, uh, a book about how to apply a particular type of cognitive behavioral therapy. And I thought there were some pretty obvious uh, uh, applications. Those of us uh, in the Libertarian Party and the Liberty Movement in general might want to use and uh, also some application to the fact that, you know, we live in such a bizarre society and timeline that that seems to get, you know, weirder uh, every day, especially for those of us who believe in liberty and self-ownership, things like that. Um, I, I also think there's some other valuable schools of thought in psychology uh, that can, you know, shed light on things to libertarians in particular, but to, but really to everybody. And I might try to get into that uh, with someone else on another episode. Uh, but I think we can learn a lot about ourselves and how to uh, just uh, get by better, be more effective, be more uh, satisfied with what we're doing uh, by listening to what uh, Dr. Edelstein has to say. You came highly recommended by one of the favorite guests that I've had on Decentralized Revolution, and that's uh, Dr. Walter Block. How do you know Dr. Block? Yeah, Walter and I have been fast friends uh, since we met in Brooklyn in the late 1970s. And uh, we met uh, indirectly through the type of therapy I will be discussing, because he was in that therapy and I was in that therapy and uh, a mutual friend introduced us. Okay. So, yeah, and in his email to me, he said, hey, you should have Michael on uh, maybe to talk about things like, uh, you know, working together uh, inside the LP and inside the Mises Caucus, trying to avoid burnout, uh, trying to how to deal with infighting and things like that. Um, so uh, you have a particular uh, uh, psychological school of thought to, to deal with these type of things, correct? Yes, that's correct. So tell us about that. Sure. And uh, I learned this from Albert Ellis uh, in the 1960s, and he was my therapist at first. Then um, I worked at his institute. Then we were colleagues. And uh, he devised a school of therapy called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, specifically more generally known as Cognitive Behavior Therapy, and that uh, changed the entire school of the psychotherapy movement from more psychoanalytic, Freudian type of therapy where you talk a lot about your childhood and you believe that the reason you have emotional and behavioral problems in the present is rooted in your childhood, whereas Albert Ellis's idea, which has garnered much popularity these days is that it's not your childhood that's really irrelevant. The reason you have emotional and behavioral problems is because of your thinking, because our emotions and our behaviors come from our thinking. That is a main principle of this approach. Our emotions and our behaviors come from our thinking, not from situations. It's our thinking about the situations that cause these uh, feelings and behaviors. 
So does do things like uh, our past things that have happened to us uh, decisions we've made in the past, how do, how do they influence our thinking? You said, you know, it only matters how, how you're thinking about this stuff, but where does a particular person's mode of thinking come from and is that to change? Okay. Where does our mode of thinking come from is a good question. And it large, the research indicates it largely comes from genetic predispositions. So we all have uh, genetic inheritance uh, from our parents, grandparents, and others down the line. And uh, these uh, cause us to have certain influences to think in certain ways. But that's not deterministic. Uh, if we have a tendency toward depression, for example, as I did in, in the early days before I met Albert Ellis, or we have a tendency to anxiety, depression, uh, procrastination, or addictions, that can be changed if we look at the thinking that's causing it in the present, although it has these other influences, past and uh, environment, those things. But that can be changed in the present by identifying the thinking that's causing these problems and analyzing them, looking for the evidence. Is this thinking reasonable, rational, pragmatic, logical? And if not, then we can intervene ourselves to change them. So what's an example of that faulty thinking that, that you're saying leads to some of the emotional problems that we have? Yeah, great question. And the answer is, in general, faulty thinking comes from taking our strong preferences and escalating them into demands, must, shoulds, have tos, supposed tos. And there are three general areas of our lives where we have demands when we do. The first is a demand on oneself. And that takes the form of, because I prefer to do well and get your approval, therefore I absolutely must. I have to do well, I have to get your approval, and if I fail or you criticize me, this means I'm no good, I'm a loser, I'm a worthless person. And that leads to anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, and by the way, Aaron, one of the talks I give to libertarian audiences is called Why Ayn Rand's Self-Esteem is Unreasonable, or Why Her Concept of self-esteem is unreasonable. Uh, the second area of demands is not on oneself, but a demand on others. And that takes the form of, because I strongly prefer you treat me well, kindly, courteously, lovingly, etc. Therefore, you absolutely must, you have to. And if you don't, you're no good. You're a bad person. You're a loser. And that leads to anger, resentment, and hostility. And, so it's, it, yeah, it so, sounds like in both of those cases where um, uh, I think you're contending that we have an ideal and if we don't get, you know, basically we want everything around us to comport with our, um, our desires, uh, different uh, traditions, religious traditions, uh, psychological schools of thought, deal with that of how to get out of that trap in different ways people it's like mindfulness meditation prayer different things like that so talk about the what your approach is and how it relates to those others and what the evidence uh is for for the various ways of uh attacking that thinking yeah i'd like to those are some good questions let me start with the first Thing you mentioned we have an ideal. Yes, we have an ideal and we prefer to live up to the ideal. We prefer others live up to the ideal. We prefer our life lives up to our ideal, but those are just preferences. The key is when you're disturbed, you're escalating those preferences, those ideals into demands. Must, should, supposed tos, have tos. So I mentioned the first two demands, a demand on oneself, a demand on others. And then the third area of demands is a demand on the conditions of one's life. And that takes the form of, because I prefer my life be 
fair, easy, and hassle-free. Therefore, it absolutely must. My life must be fair, easy, and hassle-free. And if it's not, then I'll be miserable. I have to escape in drugs, alcohol, procrastination, or even worse, suicide. Uh, so that's the third area of must. So my approach in working with clients is after we identify what they'd like help with, I um, help them identify the irrational thinking, the musts and shoulds, the demands that are causing those problems. And then I teach them ways to uproot those musts and shoulds. And briefly, that way is by uh, identifying your thinking, the demand, and then questioning, challenging, and contradicting the demands. Showing yourself there's no reason things have to be the way you want them to be. There only would be one reason, and that is if you run the universe. <laughs> uh, but I haven't noticed that either you or I, Aaron, have been elected ruler of the universe. And uh, so there's really no reason why things have to be the way we want them to be, although it would be highly preferable because if they're not, then we get significant disadvantages. Not horrors, not terrors, not end of the world scenarios, just significant disadvantages. And even in the worst case scenario, if tomorrow I get a, a diagnosis of terminal cancer, that is very, very sad, very unfortunate. It's not the end of the world. It's the end of my world, but it's not the end of the world. And uh, I can work toward accepting the uh, reality. Now, is that easy to do? No, it's not easy. It takes work and practice. Practice questioning and challenging your musts and shoulds and demands again and again and again and again. And I teach my clients what I call three-minute exercises or A, B, C, D, E, F, which is a flow chart that shows them how they can practice this kind of thinking in a written and specific form. Let's. I'm going to come back to that, and maybe we can talk about that flow chart and how to apply it to some of the things we mentioned earlier. Uh, I have sort of two things I want to touch on before we get there. And that's in regards to what we were just talking about, you know, we're not, uh, we're not God, we don't have magic powers, uh, but we still want to improve ourselves. We do want to make the world, uh, both ourselves and the world around us, uh, a little bit better according to our value system. And of course, you know, for, for people who are part of the Mises caucus, uh, uh, in, in particular, libertarians in general, we see a lot of things wrong with the world. We want to make the world better for everyone. How do we do that without, um, you know, constructing this ideal? You know, I, in, in my own therapy, in my own life, I've always had trouble with that. Um, I want to change. I want to be better. But then I tend to be hard on myself and, 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 and how, so how do you stay motivated to change yourself, to change things around you without going too far? Yeah. So, uh, the answer is by constructing an ideal, we don't want to avoid constructing an ideal because having an ideal that we're working toward is motivating. It's an incentive to work hard, to, uh, create Liberty to the extent we can. So we want to have an ideal, but we don't want to escalate the ideal into a must or should or demand where we defeat ourselves or lead to feuding and burnout, which uh, I've seen a lot of libertarians have suffered from. Uh, so, uh, so have an ideal, have goals, passions, things you're working toward without making them musts or shoulds. And so the bottom line that we're going for is acceptance, unconditionally accepting others as the imperfect humans they are, although we may not like how they're acting, unconditionally accepting ourselves as the imperfect humans we are, although we may screw up and act poorly at times, and unconditionally accepting the world with the problems it has, although they're not necessarily 
etched in stone, something we can work toward. And as libertarians, that what that's what we're doing and hoping to make some changes. So, uh, so go for unconditional acceptance, and that will help you be less disturbed and more effective in thinking about the best ways to go about these goals. And I think uh, the other thing that I uh, that I think kind of naturally follows from that, let me know if you agree, is to then take some satisfaction in the small victories, uh, the efforts that we make that maybe sometimes they don't pan out, but we're proud of how we went about it. Uh, when we do have a victory, we can, can celebrate a, a small victory. Does that, does recognizing those, you know, stair steps, does that help? Oh, yes. Oh, very much so. Uh, that's key. I'm glad you mentioned that, Aaron. So ha- take satisfaction in the small steps and in the process and uh, don't uh, think that because you haven't reached the end goal that it's a failure or you're a failure. Uh, you're working toward it. And really, one of the main things that I think will help libertarians is by enjoying the process and not making the product what they're aiming for, the ultimate end goal in order to enjoy. Right. So, um, yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, those of us who are over 40, I think, are much more likely to have encountered Rand and gone through a Rand phase on our way to becoming libertarians. Uh, you know, her, uh, we won't get into what, you know, what she thought of libertarians and, and how yeah. she's different and all that. That's a, that's a, a, a topic for another, uh, you know, series of uh, podcast episodes, if you right. want to go down that rabbit hole. But, um, and again, so I think some younger people might not have gone through that phase and read a lot of Rand, but a lot of them have. Um, and especially in regard to how the public sees libertarians, a lot of times if you mention you're a libertarian or libertarianism comes up in public discussion, there's always some wisecrack about, oh, you guys are just, you know, Ayn Rand worshipers or something. And of course, that's far from far from the case, but it's also, you know, she was and still is a, a big sort of intellectual presence over the movement. And, you know, one of her core things is about uh, self-esteem. So tell us, you know, what what she uh, thought about it, and why she's wrong and why why we libertarians should uh, should try to sort that out. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the idea about self-esteem is thinking that if you act well, you're a good person. If you act poorly, you're a bad person or a loser worthless, a failure, and that was her idea also, and she had names for these people <laughs> that she didn't like, the way that they acted, like moocher and things like that, uh, but the problem there with self-esteem is you're rating your total self, your total worth, your personhood based on the rating of your actions, so for example, if I look back on this interview with you, Aaron, and I think I did a good job, if I said, therefore, I'm a good person because I did a good job, that raises my self-esteem, but that's an overgeneralization. I I could have done a good job, and that's what I'm trying to do, but it doesn't make me a good person. It makes me a person who acted well, did well in this particular interview. So the bottom line is, rather than self-esteem and rating people in terms of their behavior and putting people up or putting people down, the bottom line is unconditional acceptance, as I mentioned earlier, and that's seeing everyone, you, me, even politicians, as imperfect humans who act imperfectly, not rotten people. There's no such thing as a rotten or worthless person. That's a fiction. There are just people doing things, and some of the things they do are good. Some of the things they do are bad. Some of the things help liberty. Some of the things defend uh, are against liberty. But through all that, we're all just imperfect humans who act imperfectly, and that's called 
unconditional self-acceptance rather than high or low self-esteem. Now, that doesn't mean you give up on your goals because if you'd like to do well, that's a goal and you work toward that. You don't have to do that in order to prove you're a good person or avoid doing that in order to avoid thinking you're a bad person. You do it because it helps you achieve your goals, helps you achieve liberty, helps you get along better with your colleagues in the libertarian movement, etc. So uh, that's the idea there. Yeah. And so I want to get into that topic of just that and specifically of sort of the infighting that that sometimes ha- happens among libertarians, especially in the libertarian uh, party, the different factions within it. Of course, we saw that uh, speaking of Ayn Rand, you know, she uh, her, you know, her approach to things did kind of, I think, foster that sort of uh, environment uh, in her circle. She drove away a lot of people. Um, how do we, how do we deal with, especially, you know, right now, um, uh, most of our, my listeners will know, uh, what's going on in places like Delaware and New Hampshire and other places. There's some libertarian party infighting in those places where people who are very opposed to the Mises caucus for various different reasons, uh, some of them, as they state them are, are fabricated, right? The, the things they say about us are not true. Uh, they do, they've done things that are unethical. Uh, they've lied, they've stolen in some cases. Um, how do you deal with, how do you deal with people like that who seem to be irrationally, you know, fixated on you or on what you're trying to do and trying to hamper that? when, you know, we want to build alliances with everybody, but there's some people that you just can't, it seems like. So how do we, how do you deal with someone who won't listen to reason and won't go away? Yeah, well, the first step is um, unconditional acceptance, not condemning them, hating them, getting angry or hostile at them. That tends to alienate people. That usually doesn't work. So the way to try to build a bridge, and it may not work with everyone, is to uh, first unconditionally accept them as imperfect humans that they are, and then say, uh, I would like to discuss this with you. We have a disagreement. I have some suggestions. Would you be interested in some suggestions? So try to build a more uh, open discussion, a dialogue with people, by being open yourself and certainly not condemning them or being vicious, sarcastic, those kinds of things. So that would be the first step. And then there are various good communication strategies uh, that we could go into, but that would be the structure for it. Uh, Reaching out, I'd like to discuss this with you, uh, if you would, and... uh, I don't think you're a bad person, but we have some disagreements, and let's see what we can uh, mutually agree on. And, and I think that's kind of the approach that we've taken, uh, is that, but more focused on people who haven't really solidified their opposition, people who are uh, still of good faith, who are willing to listen and talk. And I know that uh, we've won we've won over some people who believed certain things that were false. They came, they talked, they saw, and they um, found it wasn't true or, you know, there's a misunderstanding and now they're, you know, either friendly toward us or or part of um, our caucus. And I guess the question is though, how there are some people, and I think we have these, uh, we all have people like this in our lives sometimes. So it's not just about, you know, what's going on uh, inside the LP, but let's say that you've made the best effort you can to, to dialogue that you're, you're not demonizing them. You recognize that they're flawed. You're trying to deal with them on that basis, but either they're out of spite, maybe they're an addict and can't or won't change. You know, what happens when that, that approach that you just suggested that, it just won't work that you've tried it and tried it and tried it. 
uh, how do you how do you deal with people like that? Well, uh, it's wonderful that you've made built some bridges with some of these people who were you were at odds with at first. And I suggest what you do is you focus on them and work with them. If someone is recalcitrant and isn't going to listen at no matter what your best efforts are, there's a time to decide to give up with this particular person, but not with your overarching goal to build bridges with some of these people. And it sounds like that's what you and the caucus have been doing. So I commend you on that. So it's it's entirely okay to recognize, um, you know, you know, looking at reality. Maybe this person just doesn't want to deal with me again. You know, I, I have uh, uh, individual people in my life who are, are kind of like that, and I just don't talk to them anymore. Uh, if the, if the door ever opened back up, maybe I would, but. Uh, I think sometimes you just have to, rather than try to change somebody who doesn't want to change and doesn't want to talk, you just have to have to give up and, and move on, right? That's right. At some point, it's just like you're beating your head against a brick wall. Yeah. But in trying to get them to open up more, there are two strategies I recommend. And I work with couples a lot that are at odds. And these what this is what I suggest to them, among others. And one is a lot of positive feedback. Find things that are positive about them, about what they're doing, about what they're thinking, and uh, express that prodigiously. So a lot of positive feedback and then empathy. That's really, really important. Empathize with how they feel. I understand you're very frustrated with the Mises Caucus because we're at odds. If I were in your situation, I might feel the same way. So I don't think you're a bad person. And uh, let's see if we can help you reduce your frustration by reaching some kind of detente or some kind of reconciliation. But as you're posing, Aaron, there are some people you just won't get through. Uh, and it, there is a time to give up on those people. Yeah. Um, another thing is uh, uh, prevalent uh, in libertarian circles, uh, especially in the LP that I've seen. I, I've been active uh, in one sense or another in the LP for uh, since about 2010. And I've seen a lot of people burn out. Uh, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. There's the infighting. There's the fact that, you know, Republican Democrats make it very hard for libertarians to, to get on the ballot, to run candidates, to raise money, things like that. So we have these goals. We're trying to move toward them to get these little victories. It, it you know, it's like Sisyphus, right? It seems like we, you know, we get on the ballot in this state. Now we're off the ballot in that state. So uh, there's the, a lot of people, libertarians come in, they're idealistic. They find out that we're, you know, we're not going to, uh, you know, be electing governors uh, sometime in the next few years. And then, it becomes dispiriting. So how do you deal with that and, and other things that, that lead to burnout among people who, who share your vision for things? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a great question, Aaron. And, and you said it becomes dispiriting. Now remember feeling dispirited is an emotion right. and it is a situation. So we go back to the basic principle. It's not situations. Things aren't working. I thought, we would move faster in the right direction. That's the situation that leads you to feel dispirited, but rather it's your thinking about it. So the first thing to do is to investigate that and see what your must or should is. We must make progress sooner. Things must go the way I thought they would go when I first joined the movement. It shouldn't be so hard. It shouldn't be two steps forward and one step back. So look for your demands, your musts and shoulds, and show yourself again and again and again. Those are reasonable preferences. Don't give up your preferences. That gives you incentive and motivation, but accept the frustrations, meaning you recognize this is the way it is. You acknowledge it, yet you see it's not the end of the world. It's not awful, terrible, or horrible, and you can live with it, even though you prefer not to. And that will help you be much less dispirited and make it easier for you to move ahead 
and uh, push the rock up two steps, and even though it's going to come back one step. Yeah. Um, l- let's apply this to you know what's going on in in the world around us. Um, you know, it's been about twenty months, I think, since the you know what I call the virus panic uh, kind of started. Government taking advantage of that to uh, you know put in all these different policies to print all this money um, and, and really constricting a lot of people in as far as the choices they, they, they can make uh, without suffering consequences. And, and, and the thing about it to me, there's been a couple of things that I, I've really been uh, trying to deal with is one is just the seeming willingness of other people to go along with this stuff and even to, you know, to support uh, uh, violations of, of, of the rights of others just so you feel comfortable, whether it's, you know, vaccine mandates or, or lockdowns. Hey, I don't care if your business uh, goes under, uh, uh, I might get sick. Um, and, and then also the, just the, uh, the sheer power that, that government seems to have on enforcing these things. So, you know, we libertarians are already predisposed to uh, have problems with authority and accepting the way things are. Uh, and, and then all this other stuff comes along. And even people who don't, um, who aren't libertarians are are suffering psychological consequences from this on down to kids in school wearing masks. So when, when it, when everything looks bad like that, how do you find I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes the situations, it seems very, very difficult and confusing as to how to reframe your thinking when it, when it seems like everything that happens is, is uh, something that's making you think something else. Yeah, it is difficult. Uh, It's not easy. It's easy for me to say, but it's hard to do as you're saying, Aaron, but the way you reframe your thinking is by doing what libertarians do in the political and economic sphere, and that is looking for the evidence for your underlying beliefs that causes you to feel like giving up and causes you to feud and and, uh, that causes you to feel dispirited. So look for the evidence for your thinking. And again, go back to the main principle. Your Your feeling, your emotions come from your thinking. And that's a very powerful idea because if it's your thinking that causes your emotions, then you can change your thinking. You can learn to accept the bad situation we're in now, and you outlined in many ways why it is very bad. People act sheep-like and will go along with authorities unquestioning and go along with the culture and their friends and things like that. That's the way people are. But the... Uh, recognize that, accept it, not like it, accept it, and use that as motivation to try even harder to make changes in the world. So again, change your thinking, you change your view, you change your emotions, you change your life. Uh, A book that has had a big effect on my life, and I'm curious to see, um, I know because this person is a different school of psychology than than CBT, uh, the cognitive behavioral um, uh, sort of sphere that that you're advocating, and that's uh, Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, I, I've read that book I think three times now. It's had a huge uh, effect on me, and uh, it, it's about. And you could go into more of his ideas if you if you like to, but you know Victor Frankel was a uh, I think a psychotherapist in Vienna which of course we as uh, Austrian uh, uh, followers of the Austrian School of Economics, uh, he was probably around, I think, the same time that Mises was in, in Vienna and, and Hayek. Uh, he did not make it out uh, of Germany. Uh, he and his family you know, were uh, snatched up by the Nazis. I think he lost his entire family. Uh, he uh, survived uh, in, I think, more than one of the concentration camps. And then out of this, he, you know, he writes this book, Man's Search for Meaning, in which he, you know, describes how he, um, he did that and found meaning and, and kept going. And so I see some similarities into how he did it, into what you're 
uh, talking about, but I, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts of uh, his his school of thought and, and his approach are. Yeah, I think his main idea is consonant with REBT, the therapy I do, rational emotive behavior therapy, and that is you can change your thinking. So one of the things he illustrates in the book, Man's Search for Meaning, a great book, and I highly recommend it, is uh, that when he was in the concentration camp and he saw his fellow prisoners very, very depressed, dying, giving up, uh, he asked himself, well, what could I do to help them? And what he did to help them is to try to help them establish some kind of meaning. So one of the uh, areas of agreement with Viktor Frankl's, um, what he called logotherapy and REBT is that you define your own meaning into life. It's not the situation. And he came up with a meaning. His meaning in the concentration camp was to help the other people there. And that kept him going. And uh, not only did he survive, but you can see uh, an old video or two on YouTube. I watched one where he was talking about his book and about his uh, experience. Uh, so again, uh, and that's another issue I talk about. Some people come to me and say, there's no meaning in my life. But a la Viktor Frankl, define a meaning, a meaning for yourself. What are you passionate about? What are you interested in? And what really would uh, lead to enjoyment in your life? And for, for me, libertarianism is one. This, I use this to give my life meaning, to try to educate others, create liberty and freedom to the extent I can. And uh, so that's a very good lesson from Viktor Frankl and from REBT. You're in charge of how you look at things. You're in charge of your perspective. You can give yourself a meaning. And if you're depressed and dispirited, that's because you didn't give yourself a constructive, positive meaning. And so change that. That's yeah. really the good news. Um, let's, uh, can you uh, help yourself find meaning? You mentioned your, your flow chart, uh, uh, technique earlier. Uh, is there any, uh, can you use that to, to help yourself find meaning or am I understanding that a little bit differently, but I, I want to get into talking about that since you brought it up earlier. Oh yeah. So the flow chart starts with your goals or your meaning in life. And most people do have the meaning of being happy rather than miserable. So you already have a goal. And if you don't have a, a goal, outside of yourself, larger than that, then that gives you another goal. Find a passion that really sends you outside of yourself. But getting back to the flow chart, it's A, B, C, D, E, F, six steps. The first step is A, activating event, uh, which means the situation you find yourself in. So um, liberty is increasing at a snail's pace, and uh, we have a lot of setbacks. So that could be A, the activating event. B would be the irrational belief that must or should I was talking about, such as things must move faster. Uh, things should not be so slow. So that would be an irrational belief at B that leads to C, undesirable emotional consequences, depression in this case. So A, things are moving slowly. B, they must move faster. And C is depression. So at A, B, and C, we pretty much diagnose the problem of depression in an individual's case without putting them on a couch and asking them to free associate about their childhood as the Freudians would have them do. Then we go on to D, E, and F to uh, use the diagnosis to change our thinking and our emotions. D is disputing or questioning the irrational belief, and that's looking for evidence, being an empiricist. What's the evidence? Things must move faster toward liberty than they are. Where is that etched in stone? Who says that? Prove it. Then we go on to the answer. E, effective new thinking. 
And the answer is no reason things absolutely have to move faster, although it would be lovely, I would be happier, it would create a better world, but they don't have to be other than they are. Reality is reality, not what I think they should be. And accepting the reality rather than moaning and whining about it is a much more effective way to deal with it. And that leads to F, your new thinking at E, leads to F, a new feeling. And that is sad, sorry, regretful, concerned. This isn't feel-good therapy where no matter how bad things happen, you feel good about it. You would have negative emotions, but appropriate adaptive negative emotions to the situation, such as great sorrow, regret, frustration, that things are moving so slowly. And that leads to F, your new feeling regret, frustration, sorrow, those kinds of things. So that's basically the model. And when I tell clients to practice this new way of thinking, even though it's easy to say, it's harder to do, the way to do it, or one way to do it, is by questioning and challenging these musts and shoulds. And to do it cognitively in writing, you write out the three-minute exercise, A, B, C, D, E, F, again and again and again, and you'll find it's the new thinking and the better emotions will slowly creep into your brain. So it's, again, it's practice, 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 working at it um, conscientiously without giving up. And just like practicing every, anything else, if you wanted to learn a language, you'd practice it. It wouldn't be one trial learning. And this also is not one trial learning. It takes practice and uh <laughs> You can progress in slow steps over a lifetime and get more and more reasonable, less and less depressed, anxious, guilty, addicted, or procrastinating. And I outline all this and in great detail and with uh, examples in my book, which you see right here, Three Minute Therapy, uh, which you can get on Amazon, which I wrote with another libertarian, David Ramsey Steele, who wrote a number of books on it. Uh, his, one of his main ones is called From Marx to Mises. Uh, He's and, a really interesting guy. I've heard him on some other, uh, some other podcasts. Yeah, yeah. You might want to interview him. He's a very bright sort of renaissance man. And he's written books on all different subjects. One's been on Orwell. One's been on atheism. Uh, a few others. And one on fascism. Okay. And uh, so I, I highly recommend him. So again, get down to the basics, changing your thinking and practice, practice, practice to do that. Yeah. The, the book links to that, all of your books I'll, I'll put on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 68 had a couple of questions uh, uh, flowing from uh, uh, what we were just talking about. And uh so what do you do when you have a client who, you know, you teach them uh, this method, you encourage them to do this, they maybe do it for a while, but, you know, for one reason or another, you know, what kind of roadblocks come up uh, in the lives of, you know, clients who are trying to apply this and how do you encourage them to get past those roadblocks? Yeah, that's an interesting question because some of these roadblocks are similar to some libertarians who have burnout. And one is, it should not be so hard to get over my disturbed emotions. It should be easy. And uh, I discussed that earlier, the third demand. Life should be easy. So one of the things I encourage them to do is question that. Why does your life have to be easy even though it would be desirable it would be great if it was, but it doesn't have to be. So that's one roadblock. Another roadblock, again, is uh, liberty creeping slowly with setbacks. And uh, we must not have setbacks. We should be more successful. I should see success. It shouldn't be so hard with the people I'm dealing with and with the politicians. Um, they shouldn't. They act so stupidly, they should, and actually, in many ways, they're acting in their own interest, uh, not in yours, so that explains some of their behavior. And um, others should 
uh, help me, other libertarians should help me in just the way I want them to help me. Because, of, of course, I know the way, and they should see the light. And that idea leads to a lot of the feuding. So identify the shoulds and musts, question, challenge, and contradict them again, 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 and act against them. So if uh, there's another libertarian who is acting in contrary ways to you, instead of condemning them and giving up, Try to open a discussion. Try to dialogue with them. See if you can build a bridge with them. And as you said, Aaron, earlier, there are some that are open to that and others who are not. So that's the way it goes. Yep. One last question. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times procrastination. And I think in one of the the uh, times you mentioned it, you mentioned it along with things like addiction, I think, as a uh, you termed it like an escape. And so I think that uh, it's very easy for us to think about how addiction is uh, an escape from reality. Uh, how is procrastination? I, I think I know, um, uh, but uh, I don't think people right, uh, right away would think of procrastination as an escape. How is it an escape and, and how do you address it? Yeah, good question. And in my book, I have chapters both on addictions and uh, procrastination in my book, Three Minute Therapy. And um, uh, procrastination is an escape because normally you're putting off doing something that's unpleasant, something you prefer to not to do, something that may be hard to do. And the must there is, it must be easy. It shouldn't be so hard. So I'll put it off, do something else, or escape in drugs, alcohol, sex, uh, video games, and other things. So, so again, uh, getting back to the basics, look for the must, look for you should. In this case, it's called low frustration tolerance or low discomfort tolerance. You have frustrations. Life consists of one frustration after another. It always has and it always will. But there are pleasures and satisfactions in between that. All is not bad. So work on uh, showing yourself again and again and again that there's no reason why it shouldn't be frustrating. If you want to improve things, face the frustrating tasks and do them rather than putting them off where it's hanging over your head and makes your life much worse in the long run. Right. So, Change your thinking and change your behavior, a two-pronged approach. And, and I think that's one thing that's helped us here in the Mises Caucus and, uh, you know, people like Mises, uh, uh, you know, talking about this concept in economics and other things uh, is, is low time preference, right? I mean, that to me, that seems like a very good strategy to reframe our thinking that, hey, you know, we, we aren't going to elect Ron Paul as president uh uh, in three years. Uh, so what do we do to try to, you know, make those little steps, uh, in the right direction. And by focusing on those, uh, I think that's, that's one reason why I haven't seen much burnout in the Mises caucus, uh, specifically because we're, uh, I think focused on that, you know, we're building organizations in each state running candidates at the local, local level, uh, you know, building coalitions to, you know, like, you know, uh, legalize uh, this drug or that drug at, at a local um, uh, setting. And I think by by starting with some of that lower hanging fruit and the long game that uh, it, it's it's served us well, not only strategically, but I think emotionally. So, yeah, that's great. That's great. And speaking of Mises, Mises had something very important to say on the psychological aspect here, and that is, uh, it's quoted in Latin, in uh, wherever it's quoted, but the English is, do not give in to evil, but proceed ever more boldly against it. And in this case, uh, in the psychological realm, the evil is feeling like giving up, feeling over-frustrated, making yourself depressed, anxious, angry, those kinds of things, uh, and uh, about other people's bad behavior. Yeah. So don't give into that by upsetting yourself, but proceed ever more boldly against it. 
and that's a great anti-procrastination saying. Yeah, yeah that, that is. Uh, I think we should all take that uh, to heart. And I think this is, uh, um, I think a lot of us probably needed uh, this uh, uh, talk at, at this point in things. So um, I appreciate you bringing your perspective to things. Uh, thanks for doc- to Dr. Block. I'll thank him for uh, suggesting you. And so one more time, uh, tell people uh, who you are, where they can get your books, in addition to on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 68. Right. I'm my, thank you, Aaron. I'm Dr. Michael Edelstein, the clinical psychologist. My practice is remote now, uh, so I have clients around the world. And uh, I'm the author of Three Minute Therapy. And if you get that book, you'll get all these ideas and great elaboration with examples. Oh, I also would like to mention I'm a facilitator in a group, a free self-help group for addictions, and it's called Smart Recovery, S-M-A-R-T, recovery.org. So if you go to the website, you'll see where the uh, meetings are. We have meetings every night, and you can come to a meeting if you want help with your addictions or procrastination. And you'll learn some of these principles and you can bring up your own problems. And these principles will show you how to apply. Uh, these, the uh, leaders will show you how to apply these principles to your these issues, to addictions and procrastination. I have a blog on psychology today called The Three Minute Therapist. And uh, I have a podcast and uh, pod, uh, podcasts called three minute therapy podcast and uh if you if you have any questions and you'd like to contact me directly through email or phone you can get my contact information at my website which is three minute therapy.com and three is spelled out three minute therapy.com you can contact me there thank you very much aaron for having me and the great questions (laughs) they were uh very elucidating. I appreciate them. Very timely and on topic. And uh, thanks again for having me. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Dr. Michael Edelstein for coming on the show and for accommodating a last minute schedule change that I had to uh, impose on him. Uh, Thanks also to Dr. Walter Block for recommending Dr. Edelstein. Uh, A link to Three Minute Therapy, uh, the doctor's book uh, about what we talked about today, Uh, a link to his blog on psychology today, and more are up at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 68. Thanks to Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And thanks to everyone who subscribes to our email list and gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.